Welcome to the Saxophone History Podcast, a thoughtful, researched, and slightly irreverent look at the history of our instrument. I'm your host, Andrew D. Meyer. The one infallible rule about playing jazz, of any sort, is that you must be happy about what you play yourself. If you're at all unhappy or unsure of yourself, no matter what you play, it won't be good. That's a quote from Paul Desmond, the subject of today's episode. In a way, this episode will be a bit like the episode I did on Johnny Hodges, in that telling the story of Paul Desmond inevitably means telling a good part of the story of Dave Brubeck just as telling the story of Johnny Hodges means telling much of the story of Duke Ellington. Dave Brubeck speculated that he would have become a much better pianist had he not spent so many years as Desmond's accompanist. I had never really considered that Brubeck might regard himself as such, and I'm hoping that this episode will provide some new insights into the life of a saxophonist that many of us think we know well. Brubeck also alludes to Desmond's highly compartmentalized life, where one group of friends would be totally unaware of another group of friends, with Desmond only revealing select aspects of his highly private existence. He used his well-publicized wit and humor as something of a shield, leading writer Gene Lees to call him the loneliest man I ever knew. As usual, I'd like to acknowledge a primary source for this episode before we get started. For this episode, I'm pulling the bulk of the material from Doug Ramsey's book, Take 5, The Public and Private Lives of Paul Desmond. Ramsey, in addition to being a great writer and historian, has the distinct advantage of having been personally close to Desmond, and so his insights into the saxophonist's life are incredibly valuable. In his thank you section, Ramsey mentions a real who's who of jazz aficionados like Lee Konitz, Phil Woods, Jim Hall, Will Claxton, uh, George Avakian, James Moody, and uh, Ted Joya, and Andre Previn, amongst many others. And I think that this just goes to show how much of a figure on the jazz scene Desmond was and how many lives he touched. This dive into Desmond's life is going to be in a couple of parts because there's there's just a lot of great stuff on him, and I think it'll be a little more manageable to have a couple of episodes rather than one giant one. Also, last week I was in Paris, and I thought it would be romantic to be like handwriting notes for the show in, in cafes and not dragging my laptop along. And I did indeed feel very cool doing that, but I felt decidedly less cool when I left all of my handwritten notes on the plane like an idiot, so I'm a little behind schedule with this one. I've chosen to refer to Desmond as Paul through his early years and only adopt Desmond when we get to the part of the story where he starts using that name. I hope that's not confusing or off-putting. I suppose the other option would be to refer to him as Breitenfeld for the first part of his story, but I think using Paul for his formative years and Desmond for the more mature years of his career fits the narrative well. I'm going to go into pretty extensive detail about Desmond's early life and early career, partly because there's a lot of information available and it's pretty interesting, but also because I think it's interesting to see how an artist with such a specific and refined vision of the way he wanted to play came into his mature style. I think before really diving into his backstory, I had uh, just sort of assumed that Desmond always played the way that he did. 
and that it was just like really natural for him to play that way. The real story of the early part of his life and career shows that that wasn't really the case, and I think it's quite fascinating. Paul Emil Breitenfeld was born November 25th, 1924, in San Francisco. Desmond's father, Emil, who was the son of Austrian immigrants, was a pianist and composer-slash-arranger who accompanied silent films as well as provided compositions and arrangements for live theater. He wrote a marching song called The Last Long Mile, which was one of the best-known soldiers' marching tunes of the First World War, after Jerome Kern used it in his musical Toot Toot. Uh, Paul's mother, who was an Irish Catholic, uh, raised in San Jose, suffered from mental illness that's often described as a form of uh, OCD, and she was emotionally unstable throughout Desmond's childhood, which resulted in him staying with relatives in New Rochelle, New York, for five years. Other famous people born in 1924 include Robert Mugabe, uh, Truman Capote, Marlon Brando, George H.W. Bush, and Henry Mancini. Paul's father, Emil, grew up in an ultra-strict Germanic household uh, where his father had little patience for Emil's interest in music, even though he showed a great deal of talent and potential from a very young age. Eventually, when it became clear that Emil was as stubborn in his desire to go into music as his parents were adamant that he find some other respectable profession, they relented and offered to help him, you know, get a start in the business by uh, having this family friend, Deems Taylor, who was a composer of light operas, help guide him on a path to a, you know, successful musical career. Emil wasn't having any of that, and instead insisted that he do it on his own, striking out for the opposite coast and a new life in music in San Francisco. San Francisco was perfectly suited to the excesses of the 1920s, which may have been one reason that drew young Emil Breitenfeld to the hills overlooking the bay. In my episode on Elise Hall, I mentioned that the saxophone found its way to the west coast of North America via Napoleon III's invasion of Mexico in 1862 and spread throughout the continent as a result. San Francisco had seen a population explosion, with the gold rush doubling its population every 10 days in 1848 and 1849. With this drastic increase in population came the accompanying theaters, saloons, clubs, and what would become a long tradition of permissive entertainment and alcohol consumption. The second half of the 19th century also saw a great influx of French and Italian immigrants who brought with them a cultural taste for alcohol, which would stay popular before, during, and after Prohibition in California. The turkey trot, the bunny hug, the chicken glide, the Texas Tommy, the pony prance, and the grizzly bear were all popular dances that emerged from California dance halls. And with this demand for entertainment, it's easy to see why the saxophone proliferated on the West Coast and why Emil Breitenfeld would have found it an attractive location. Like many men of his generation, Emil did a stint in the army at the tail end of the First World War, but did not deploy. His time in the army would help him recognize the difficulties of being an artistically minded young man in the service and help him relate to his son years later when Paul was enlisted during the next great conflict. As he was coming out of the army, Emil was trying his best to write and sell popular songs to publishers and looking for work as an organist playing accompaniments to silent films. From correspondence with his mother, it's known that he found steady accompanist work in a theater in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. 
Shortly after landing in Pennsylvania, there's a nearly year-long gap in his correspondence with his mother, after which he turned up in San Francisco in the spring of 1920. In San Francisco, Emil found work as an organist at the California Theater, accompanying silent films and composing and arranging for prologues and special features. During this time, it was quite common for vaudeville shows to present short films during their shows, and some form of mixed entertainment involving film and live performance was quite common. And that's because um, films weren't yet developed to, you know, sort of the full feature length that we're used to now. During the silent film era, theaters of all sizes employed musicians, whether it was a solo pianist slash organist or, or even ensembles up to full orchestras to accompany films. Studios would often send out scores with their films for live performance or else accompanists would just improvise uh, music along with the, with the film. Emil found plenty of work accompanying films while also composing for stage shows and working toward a certification exam with the American Guild of Organists. Emile also came into a rather influential position at a music publisher called Via Moray. He was recently married and the future seemed bright for the young musician. Unfortunately, Emile's wife, who is Paul's mother, was afflicted with a mental illness that likely would be diagnosed as some sort of obsessive compulsive disorder today. Psychology and mental health knowledge being what it was in the 1920s, uh, little is known about her illness except for the symptoms, which left her very unstable and with a crippling fear of dirt, disease, and death. Paul once said that he couldn't have any magazines that dealt with death delivered to his house because his mother just wouldn't have it. One time she opened the door and there was an issue of The New Yorker with a dead mouse on the cover, so that was the end of The New Yorker being delivered to the Breitenfeld house. Shirley had to have her own part of the refrigerator that no one else could use, and she would never dine with Paul and his wife when they were living there shortly after their marriage. Uh, that's years later. For his part, Emil seems to have been very supportive and loving with his wife, taking her for several weeks long rests at the beach to try to help her relax and feel more at ease. His letters to his family on the East Coast are often positive and refer to the progress that Shirley is making, though in hindsight, it seems that she really wasn't making any progress. Unfortunately, Paul's mother seemed to go downhill following Paul's birth to the point where she couldn't even touch him unless she was wearing rubber gloves. In 1933, when Paul was eight or nine, he was sent to live with Emile's brother's family in New Rochelle, New York for five years. It sounds like Emile just thought it was too much to have him in the house with the troubles his mother was having. Paul was very close to his father, and I can imagine that this was a really difficult decision for Emile to make. And I think that that probably illustrates like just how extreme Shirley's condition had become. Also, keep in mind that Emile was working as a musician and arranger composer, so he likely had some flexibility in his day-to-day -day schedule to take care of his wife you know, during the days when he needed to. It's, it's not like he was required to spend his daytime hours in a factory or something. I think that that all just goes to show what kind of mental state Paul's mother must have been in. While staying with his relatives, there were a lot of rules, like what time to be home for dinner and, and you know, like what time children had to be in bed. And this is quite different from the life lived with Paul's artistic father on the West Coast. Descriptions of this time don't make it sound like Paul was attempting to be intentionally disruptive or, or that his relatives were mean to him. 
it just sounds like these kinds of structures were totally foreign to him and he just like just couldn't grasp on to like rules and stricture you know there are stories of his adopted family finding him just kind of like zoning out while putting on his socks or absentmindedly missing the strict curfews in the evenings and i think that just as Paul found these rules and, and this like uh, strict life to be really foreign and alien to him. It sounds like his family, who was like, you know, very Germanic and, and into these kind of rules, uh, found him just like like spacey and, and kind of alien. Like, you know, here's this California boy who's just like dreaming all the time. <laughs> it's quite a nice image. Paul's cousin, Rick Breitenfeld, who was seven years younger than Paul, came to idolize him as an older brother. Rick Breitenfeld came to inherit a huge trove of correspondence from Paul's life that shows great insight into how Paul was feeling about things throughout his life. Letters home to his father from New Rochelle show a young boy who settled into what was probably a very foreign lifestyle for him quite well. They also show the closeness with his father and that he was clearly missing him. While staying with his cousins, Paul started taking piano lessons, which he was quite proud to tell his father about in letters that he wrote home. One of his first tastes of musical success came during uh, his school days in New Rochelle when he wrote the words and music to a song which became something of a tradition at the school he attended, uh, which was called Daniel Webster. The school, that is. Despite the unusual situation of living away from his real family for years, it seems that Paul had a pretty normal childhood. His letters tell of frequent trips to the movies, playing pool in his uncle's basement, bike rides, sledding in a nearby park, and a pretty normal collection of boyhood activities. It, it all sounds very leave it to beaver to me. Throughout his life, Desmond never practiced any sort of religion, according to those who knew him well, like the Brubecks. Uh, sort of weirdly, in his book, Ramsey spends a few pages specula speculating over whether or not the Breitenfelds had any Jewish ancestry. I can see how this may have been important, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, but it, it just feels a bit odd to me to look back on a lifetime of, of no religious practice, both for Paul and his parents, and then, you know, speculate about whether or not he was Jewish. I, I don't know. I don't mean to make too much of a point of it. I just, it struck me as odd as I was reading it. For his 12th birthday, Paul's parents sent him a typewriter, which according to his letters back home was absolutely thrilling. Paul would have something of a literary streak throughout his career, and perhaps this gift is where it started. Shortly after his 12th birthday, Paul's father decided that Shirley's nervous condition had improved sufficiently for Paul to return home to California. Emil and Shirley had moved back to San Francisco from Berkeley and were building a house to live in. Paul enrolled at a boarding school called Burlingham. On the weekends, his parents would pick him up and uh, they would take him swimming or, or to the movies. But, uh, you know, Monday to Friday, he was living at this boarding school. His mother was still struggling with her condition, but all in all, it sounds like Paul settled into life on the West Coast pretty easily. The major advantage to returning to the West Coast was that Paul could resume his musical studies with his father. Uh, his dad was a, a really successful and respected musician working in the area, and uh, one of Paul's high school classmates would later remember that Paul's father was really demanding of him and, and demanded that he practice and study a lot. Paul began his freshman year at San Francisco Polytechnic High School in 1938. 
1938 was just at the tail end of the Great Depression and just before World War II started. The city of San Francisco had recently opened the Golden Gate Bridge in 1937 and the Bay Bridge in 1936. Um, Pan Am had started flying from San Francisco to China uh, direct, and uh, this, this made the city much less isolated than it had been throughout his boyhood. It must have been an interesting time uh, for Paul to have been coming of age as the nation came out of the misery of the Depression only to play a major role in rebuilding the world order and for him to experience the, the wartime economic boom associated with that effort. Ramsey points out in his book that musicians and artists benefited from the Roosevelt's Works Progress Administration throughout the second half of the 1930s, where they were paid to put on public concerts for free or to create works of public art, such as murals. I guess I've always associated the WPA with things like building roads or parks and, and other rather kind of physical infrastructure projects. You know, isn't the joke that they were like paying people to dig holes and fill them back in just to get the economy going? Anyway, Paul certainly would have been exposed to some of these free concerts that were put on in parks and theaters and, and as well as in school assemblies. On a side note, it's quite remarkable to me that the New Deal programs of President Roosevelt clearly valued the arts and saw them as a useful public utility worth investing in, you know, during a time of unparalleled economic misery. I'd just like to point out the difference here in the UK, where former Chancellor and now Prime Minister Rishi Sunak told us during the pandemic that the arts uh, aren't viable and that we should all like retrain in cyber or something. At the risk of getting too political, I'd like to suggest that governments should exist to build greatness in their societies, including all forms of the arts, not to abandon human expression to protect the extra zeros of the bank accounts of the 1%. In addition to these free concerts and the music that he was constantly exposed to through his father's work, Paul quickly became enamored with the nascent swing movement which more or less began for West Coast listeners with Benny Goodman playing the Palomar Ballroom in L.A. in the summer of 1935. Although his tour of the rest of the nation had been financially ruinous, Goodman found an audience of enthusiastic youths ready for a new music trend to call their own in California. Swing music found its ascent during the golden age of radio in the 1930s, meaning that live broadcasts of major artists like Benny Goodman, Woody Herman, Duke Ellington, Fletcher Henderson, Count Basie, Louis Armstrong, and Artie Shaw were becoming increasingly more accessible to Paul and his peers. Touring bands and territorial dance bands were also modernizing and moving into swing and away from ballroom dance and European styles. Paul was just coming of age and beginning to mature in his musical studies as players like Artie Shaw, Benny Goodman, and Lester Young were becoming the hottest commodities on the airwaves and in concert halls across the nation. His high school was known for having a large music program with multiple orchestras and bands. If it weren't for a small piece of advice from his father, Paul's career may have turned out very differently. In an interview with Marion McPartland, uh, Desmond said that he wanted to study French in high school, but it was offered at the same time as band, so he switched from clarinet to violin, you know, so he could be in the orchestra rather uh, than the band. His dad protested the idea, saying that he'd starve as a violinist, so the young Paul switched back to clarinet and took Spanish instead. He would later thank his father for the advice in the liner notes to the album Take Ten. Paul played clarinet in the poly band, as well as the dance band and the orchestra. 
He was apparently a quick study, and several of his classmates remember his playing as being very fine and standing out at the time. In addition to these school bands, Paul played lead alto in a city rehearsal band that was filled with high school-age students interested in jazz and swing from different schools around the city. Dave Van Crete of, future Brubeck, of the future Dave Brubeck Octet played with Paul in this ensemble, as well as Hal Strack, who remembered Paul's clarinet playing as being, as being very proper and with a well-formed embouchure. This is interesting to me because I've always thought that in order to produce the sound that he did, and especially the lightness of articulation that I associate with his playing, I've always thought that Desmond must have had a very solid technical foundation, and, and this seems like proof of that. Strack also remembers that Desmond had a very nice balanced action alto and a buffet clarinet and describes his lead playing as being very forceful and much different to his later playing. Interestingly, Strack said that during those years, Paul didn't improvise on alto at all. All of his jazz playing was done on clarinet. Around this time, Paul also started playing some of his very first entry-level gigs like USO Club Diners that would pay about a dollar and a meal for each musician. Paul didn't have saxophone instruction to match his clarinet lessons during high school. He and Hal Strack largely taught themselves the saxophone by listening to the radio and, and working out of a book titled Jimmy Dorsey Saxophone Method, A School of Rhythmic Saxophone Playing. This book somewhat surprisingly contains a section on altissimo playing, which Desmond would uh, you know, become really well known for in the future. It's a pretty interesting book, and it's very similar to Larry Teal's The Art of Saxophone Playing in that it goes through all aspects of playing and, and gives good advice on how to execute different aspects of, of playing the instrument. It's kind of interesting that Teal's book is more or less accepted as the gold standard of American saxophone literature, even though Dorsey published his book four and a half decades earlier. Uh, for the record, Dorsey's book was published in 1937, and Teal's came out in 1936. I guess maybe the difference is, you know, Larry Teal was, uh, you know, known for being a, a concert player and, and uh, obviously Dorsey was a, like a big band guy, right? So maybe that's why. Strack describes how he and Paul each had one lesson on the saxophone with local tenor man Bob Barfield to help them get over some of the uh, kind of like initial technical difficulties of switching from clarinet to saxophone. And he claims that, as far as he knows, that was the only saxophone lesson that Paul ever had. That's a cool story, but I think it's pretty unlikely, especially since drummer Earl Watkins, who, who knew the young Paul Breitenfeld, claimed that Paul studied with Barfield more frequently. During his high school years, Paul ventured into his other lifelong passion, writing. He began to write twice-weekly humor columns for the Polytechnic Parrot, uh, which is the school newspaper, right? He would later go on to be the editor of the school paper and a member of the yearbook staff and nearly pursued a career in writing over a, a career in music. Strack describes how the two budding young saxophonists would go around to any jam session they could get into. Paul, who was slightly younger, would mostly stay home during the days and practice, and the two would occasionally meet, meet up to check out new records or, or go see Bob Barfield play. It sounds like a really pleasant existence to me, frankly. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, with the attack on Pearl Harbor, it was clear for nearly all young men of their age that military service was likely on the cards sooner rather than later. One major hub where young saxophonists like Paul could hear traveling talent was Sweet's Ballroom in Oakland. Billed as the East Bay's home of the big bands, 
the venue played host to pretty much the entire spectrum of big bands from uh, sort of like Guy Lombardo to Count Basie. While Sweet's Ballroom was important for young musicians in the area, it was perhaps most important for the young Paul Breitenfeld, as it's where he first had the inspiration for changing his name. Apparently, Gene Krupa's band had a new singer with a complicated Italian name that was deemed too difficult for a singer who needed to be, you know, like introduced and such. So the singer changed his name to Johnny Desmond. For the record, Johnny Desmond's real name was Giovanni Alfredo Di Simone. Paul Breitenfeld was so impressed with the smoothness of this stage name that he decided then and there that Desmond would be the name he would take if he ever needed to use a stage name. It's kind of funny that this is where Paul got the idea to use to use that as his last name. I had always heard the lines that he had given out, you know, that he'd given through his life when when asked where he got his adopted name, like I got it from the telephone book or, or from a girlfriend. It, it seems funny that he just ripped off another artist's stage name, especially since Johnny Desmond like wasn't exactly an unknown singer. You know, he had more than five dozen singles that made the charts over the course of his career. But we're getting ahead of ourselves now. This inspiration for a stage name was just an idea that Paul kept in the back in his back pocket for now. He was still primarily a clarinet player who was dappling in saxophone, but only really for lead or section playing and not any improvising. Hal Strack remembers that he suggested that Paul focus more on his alto playing as he wouldn't have to compete as much with all the great tenor and clarinet players of the day. He told Paul, you'd only have to compete with Benny Carter, Willie Smith and Johnny Hodges, you know, like as if they're just three nobodies that a young kid from San Francisco could cut anytime he wanted. Rather than taking his friend's advice, Paul went the opposite direction at first, purchasing a tenor in hopes of finding more work. Dance bands frequently had three tenors and only one alto at the time, so picking up a tenor was a pretty smart move from the perspective of finding more work. Paul joined the Local Six of the American Federation of Musicians in 1942 at the age of 17. Later that summer, Paul got a break with Jack Buckingham's Society Orchestra, which had been hired to open up at a new supper club called Topps Cafe in San Diego. Paul and Hal Strack, whom Paul also got on the gig, made their way south, stopping a couple of nights to sit in with various bands along the way. Topps Cafe was the kind of place that simply doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it was a supper club with a dance floor, and it also had like some cottages that guests could stay in. I think it was like kind of a hotel motel kind of thing. And, and the musicians also lived there while they were in residence at the club. The main band would be playing in the dining room and, and a singer and a pianist might be in the lobby or in a, or a smaller combo playing in another lounge. This type of place was a mainstay of the golden era of big bands before people started staying home at night to watch TV. Paul and Hal were staying in one of the cottages at Tops and, and working every night in the band, which sounds pretty ideal. But uh, unfortunately, the budding jazz players found the music to be uh, less than ideal, shall we say. Paul referred to the group as another stinking three tenor outfit and expressed distaste for the arrangements the group had, feeling that they weren't very hip or interesting. He also apparently found the 3 p.m. rehearsal calls to be a bit of a challenge, as he was known not to be a morning person throughout his life. In one of his frequent letters home to his dad, Paul explained that he was worried that playing tenor in the group was going to ruin his clarinet playing. 
He expressed that he was dead set on getting a tone like Benny Goodman's and wanted to pursue playing jazz clarinet, but that the more loose embouchure required on tenor was affecting his clarinet playing. He suggested that finding a job where he would be playing alto and clarinet might be better for his long-term goals. And it's very interesting to me that he was, he was like so focused on being a, a clarinet player as a young man. Incidentally, one of Paul's letters from the time says that he was taking home uh, $51.50 a week, $51.50 a week, which, according to an inflation calculator that I just used, is about the equivalent of $972 per week. In uh, That's 2023 dollars, which is, you know, not a bad sum of money for a first real gig. In the same letter that Paul disclosed how much he was making, uh, he says that he didn't have any money to send his father which received a really touching response. His dad replied saying, quote, as far as the money is concerned, don't give it a thought as you are technically still a dependent going to college in real life instead of on a campus. As I honestly believe the experience to be worth as much as college, as much as a college education, if not more. So good playing or bad, make the most of everything you see and hear, which you seem to be doing without my urging, unquote. I think that letter shows not just the closeness between father and son, but also that as an established musician, Paul's father recognized that his son was on sort of, you know, the all important crummy first gig, a rite of passage for all young musicians. Paul was certainly very fortunate to have a father in the business, you know, who could recognize what he was going through and, and the importance of those first few professional steps and offer some gentle encouragement. Paul stayed in the dance gig at Tops for about eight weeks, filling his days with, you know, playing square dance music, shopping in Tijuana, chatting up girls around the restaurant, and and playing chess. Sounds like a pretty cool existence, really, you know, except for the, like, playing cheesy dance music at night. He returned home to San Francisco and, and sought new employment, and he had his sights set on the third alto vacancy in Gus Arnheim's band, because he wanted to play in the section with Herb Lorden, who had uh, recently given him some advice on playing alto. But unfortunately, the seat went to Art Pepper, uh, leaving Paul quite upset. Though the prospect of the draft loomed over the now 18-year-old Paul, as it did for approximately 10 million young men drafted into service during the Second World War, Paul had it on good authority that he was in no real danger of seeing any action. The tide of the war had turned in favor of the Allies, and a draft, off, draft officer had told him that his eyesight would limit any duties he might be assigned to were he to be inducted. In the summer of 1943, Paul met his future wife on a gig playing lead alto. Dwayne Reeves Lamont was a few years younger than Paul and a dancer in a show modeled on the types of shows put on at Radio City Music Hall. Paul was playing in the band for the show, and the two met backstage, bonding over a shared love of reading. Duane was also passionate about writing and had won a national writing contest while in high school, a feat that helped earn her a scholarship to study writing at Stanford, which she ultimately did not take because she didn't want to live on her own. For the time being, Paul played as many casual gigs as possible around San Francisco and up in the Russian River Valley, where he met Dave Van Crete whom he had known in his high school garage band days. Uh, Dave Crete added the van part to his name, uh, and he would be a future colleague in the, the Dave Brubeck octet. 
I guess he just added that van part in because he thought it was fancier. <laughs> anyway, Van Crete was an army private playing in the 253rd Army Ground Forces Band stationed at the San Francisco Presidio. His band was looking for an alto player with some improvisational abilities, and Paul spoke to Van Crete about the possibility of filling the spot. Paul joined the army in July of 1943, following his friend Dick Vartanian. I think, uh, like a lot of people, he he joined the army. Isn't it a thing like where you you maybe get some more options about what you're doing in the army if if you join rather than being inducted through the draft? I, th I think that was probably probably the situation. Paul was not stationed at the San Francisco Presidio, but instead was shipped further down the coast to Monterey. Paul almost immediately began lobbying for a transfer back up to San Francisco, which, due to the slowness of army bureaucracy, was a long time coming. He managed to stay on in Monterey longer than was typically allowed by impressing the officer in the assignment office by playing a bunch of Benny Goodman's choruses at a dance and then agreeing aggressively with said officer later when they were arguing over who was better, Benny, Benny Goodman or Artie Shaw. In the end, that officer must have taken a shine to the young clarinetist, clarinetist because he allowed him to stay on for a few days longer than was strictly necessary to wait for his transfer to come in from Washington. Otherwise, he would have shipped out to some random posting with the rest of the guys who were inducted around the same time. It's kind of funny to think about Paul in the army, just as it is to think about any sarcastic, artistic, free thinker being forced to follow orders and maintain the needless strictures of daily life in the army. But Paul's letters home to his father suggest he found army life like kind of weirdly agreeable. He says he, he didn't mind getting up early and being ordered about like sheep and that the food wasn't too bad. He, uh, he, he, in these letters, he, he does go on at length about how uncomfortable the wool shirts were that they're forced to wear as part of the uniforms and uh, how he had, in fact, never liked the feel of wool against his skin. He described how recruits were given three aptitude tests upon induction, a mechanical test, which he claims to have been hopeless on, a general intelligence test, which he tested high enough to be considered for officer school, and a radio aptitude test, which he intentionally failed. Apparently, it was quite common for musicians to be taken out of bands and put on the super boring radio duties because musicians were naturally very good at sorting out like the long and short beeps on, on Morse code messages, a fate which Paul desperately wanted to avoid. His descriptions of his first few days in the army at Monterey are particularly funny, but he describes how there were uh, very few musicians and, and even fewer of any quality, and how the army uses the maximum number of men to do the simplest tasks with the greatest of inefficiencies, and how most of the tax tasks were unnecessary in the first place. I've never been in the army, but I've worked for a few big corporations and, and gone through like the lengthy visa application process, and I can relate to the amount of eye rolling that was probably going on during Paul's first few days in the army. It seems like anytime you're working for the government, you know, it's just nonsense, right? He was shortly transferred to Salt Lake City after being assigned a posting at the Presidio in San Francisco, where he joined the 253rd AGF band with Dave Van Crete. During his time in Salt Lake, Paul got himself hooked on Benzedrine and had a pretty close call. He had apparently made friends with one of the nurses at the base hospital who would give him Benzedrine inhalers and tablets. 
he would take the active part of the inhalers out and uh, put them in his coffee like a to make kind of like a weird stimulant tea bag kind of thing. And he would also crush up the tablets and put them in a salt shaker, which he would then take to the mess and sprinkle on his eggs in the morning. One of the effects of benzedrine is to shrink mucous membranes to make breathing easier, which had the effect of shriveling his gums to the point where his teeth were more or less hanging out by the roots. Uh, he had spent two or three weeks in the hospital being treated for this reaction and, and nearly lost all of his teeth as a result of this addiction. During this time, Paul wrote his father requesting some method books be sent to him from his things at home. From this, we know that Paul was studying from books by Closet, Labanki, Behrman, Dorsey, Shaw, and Goodman. Uh, No real surprises there. While Paul was beginning to work with Dave Van Crete at the San Francisco Presidio, another acquaintance of Crete's, Dave Brubeck, was coming closer into Paul's orbit. Brubeck had come into contact with Van Crete in 1941 when Brubeck was studying music at the College of the Pacific. Van Crete stayed with Brubeck at a rather weird-sounding apartment called the Bomb Shelter that Brubeck had in Stockton. Brubeck later joined the Army, playing in a band at Camp Han, but following the D-Day invasion on June 6th of 1944, the order came down that the majority of those stationed at Camp Han were to be converted to riflemen to assist in the push across Europe. The Camp Han, Han Band, uh, which had 135 musicians, was to be reduced to just 28. The remaining musicians were to be sent to Europe as infantry. Brubeck's cushy band gig and possibly his life were in danger unless he could find a posting that needed his services. While on leave, Brubeck visited his old friend Van Crete at the Presidio in San Francisco, who had arranged for Brubeck to play a small concert that was basically like an audition to try to get him transferred into Van Crete's band in San Francisco, and mainly to avoid, you know, going into the meat grinder in Europe. Uh, Not many of the other musicians in the band were particularly interested, and only about five showed up for for Brubeck's little concert, including Paul Breitenfeld. Paul Desmond would describe the first encounter with Brubeck pretty consistently for the rest of his career, even though Dave Brubeck disputes most of the details. Desmond would always describe Brubeck as wearing a purple army field jacket, something that Brubeck says wouldn't have been possible. Uh, Both of the men agree that Brubeck's playing was quite different from what a lot of of guys were doing, and Brubeck spoke about his interest in polytonality, and, and Desmond confirmed confirmed this, saying that they went to play a B-flat blues, and the first chord Brubeck played was a G major chord. Desmond remembered thinking that Brubeck was, quote, stark raving mad. Throughout his career, Desmond would embellish the tale of their first meeting, adding a sheepskin collar to Dave's army jacket and describing him as a surly Sioux or a Jewish Indian. He frequently repeated a description of Brubeck as, quote, passing through forlornly on his way overseas as a rifleman. One of very few riflemen to end up in Herman Goering's bed with his own band, a ballet company, and the Radio City Music Hall Rockettes, unquote. Obviously, this is just an example of Desmond's fine literary wit, but it may have been an effort to make more of a, a legend out of the first meeting that, that wasn't terribly impressive for either musician. After the meeting, Paul expressed to Van Crete that he wasn't, he, he just really wasn't impressed with Brubeck, uh, 
which was probably more of a statement of Paul's limited musical development at the time than a true reflection of Brubeck's abilities. You know, Paul was still developing his craft and was not yet a very sophisticated player at this time. In the end, Van Crete's efforts to keep Brubeck from deploying failed, and Brubeck was sent to Europe to join Patton's 3rd Army, 140th Infantry Regiment, which was near the front during the Battle of the Bulge. Brubeck was behind German lines twice during the battle when the front advanced and overtook their position. Only through an extremely lucky opportunity did Brubeck avoid actual combat when it happened when, when he happened to overhear a woman from the Red Cross asking if anyone could play the piano for a show. So he, he hears this woman, you know, asking around, does anybody know how to play the piano? And, and he volunteers. And then after hearing him in the show, an officer removed him from the combat list and instead instructed him to put together a band to entertain soldiers coming back from the front. This group, which was led by Brubeck, was known as the Wolf Pack. Incidentally, this group did accompany a traveling group of uh, Rockettes, which was where that bizarre line in Desmond's earlier description of Brubeck came from. You know, where he was like, uh, he was in Herman Goering's bed with the Radio City Rockettes or whatever. Yeah, that's that there is some actual truth to him working with the Rockettes in, in the war. Back in California, military life was positively luxurious for Paul and Van Crete. Army bands were busy with the usual cycles of rehearsals, concerts, and parades, but there was still time for sitting in with local musicians in clubs and even taking on some technically forbidden civilian work. Working in contexts outside of the military was complicated more because of union rules than by any strict policy from the military, as far as I can tell. And this was an issue because... Military musicians weren't technically allowed to be out of uniform unless they were on leave. So when they're on stage in these other contexts, it's pretty obvious like who's in the military and who's not in the union, right? You see someone, everyone else is just dressed in like suits or whatever, but these guys are wearing uh, army uniforms and you're like, hey, are you in the union? You know, that was kind of the, like how they would get busted for that, right? So the, the schedule of a military musician afforded Paul a lot of time to practice and his abilities very much began to take shape during this time. And he really became a much more mature musician. Personally, I think that in addition to just having the sheer hours available to practice, it was equally important for his development that he had opportunities either with the military bands or with local jazz outfits to try out the things that he was practicing in performance regularly. It's one thing to spend hours and hours shedding a concept, but it's it's a totally different thing to have to execute an idea in in context and have it make you know sense in the context of a tune, in a set, as a part of an evening of music. And it sounds like Paul was getting a lot of opp opportunities to hone these skills. While military life afforded him a lot of opportunities to hone his skills, it also proved a difficult lifestyle for a smart and free-thinking young man. Luckily, on August 15th, Paul and his girlfriend slash future wife Duane were having a picnic at Jack London's ranch in the Sonoma Valley when all the bells started ringing out in celebration of Emperor Hirohito's broadcast announcement of Japan's defeat. Paul's military service was about to finish, and he was about to move on to new opportunities and a new name. Shortly out of the military, he decided to change his name. 
The story told by Dwayne Lamont is that Paul was lamenting that his last name was too long and that he wanted to change it when her mother suggested he change it to Desmond. Perhaps hearing this name again reminded him of his earlier vow to use that name if he ever required another, or perhaps it never even happened. <laughs> uh, at any rate, Paul figured out that what you know he figured out what was necessary for him to legally change his name and set out for City Hall to complete the task. At 21 years old, he was officially now Paul Desmond. Still unsure whether to pursue a career as a musician or a writer, Desmond used the GI Bill and enrolled in music school at San Francisco State College, but only lasted six months in the course before switching his major to English. It seems likely to me that coming from a musical family, having worked professionally briefly, and then having been an army musician, Freshman music courses were probably just too much of a drag for him. It's pretty likely that there, you know, there would have been there wouldn't have been much in terms of jazz being offered in the course catalog at the time. Um, North Texas was the first university to offer a degree in jazz studies, incidentally, with their 1947 edition of dance band as a major. And it was the only university offering degrees in jazz for 20 years. So you know, Desmond's studies at uh, San Francisco State College is is, is not going to have anything to do with jazz. There's, there's probably nothing available, which is what he's interested in. So I get it. Like he, you know, he probably tries it out for a semester and, and is like, this is pretty square. I'm going to go and study English. So while studying English literature, Desmond took a course on Shakespeare with a notoriously difficult professor who failed every single student in the class, except for Desmond. A colleague of his took the same class the following year and used Desmond's notes, which he said were meticulously thorough, which no doubt explained why he was the only one able to pass the course. In addition to his literary studies at San Francisco State, Desmond played in a sextet with Dick Vartanian on trumpet and Cal Jader on drums. Paul Desmond and Paul Lemon were married in Reno, Nevada on July 1st, 1946. The day they were married was a weird like town celebration that uh, sounds like something like a like a pioneer day or an old west day where people dress up like pioneers and have mock courts that hand down sentences for like goofy made up things. It sounds really weird to me and uh, I, I don't really think this kind of thing goes on anymore. I don't know. Maybe it does. So here's this young couple, like all dressed up and trying to get to the courthouse to be married amidst this bizarre street festival and, and people like glom onto them, probably because they're dressed up and, and they try to take him away to a fake jail and, and Desmond just loses it. And he shouts, leave us alone. We're getting married and you're not invited. <laughs> it, it sounds totally weird, but pretty memorable wedding day, right? Back in California, the couple settled into married life with Dwayne finding an apartment and getting a cat, which they named uh, Cat, <laughs> while Paul worked playing lead alto with Steve Sacco a bit further south at Half Moon Bay. In an interview after Paul's death, Dwayne described their marriage as being like a fairy tale, not so much in the romantic way, but in terms of neither of them being grounded in any sort of reality. She said that they were both intellectually brilliant, but neither of them really existed in the real world. While it may sound that everything was going well for Desmond, who was recently married and, and had good musical prospects, the times were changing and things weren't quite as simple as they may sound. Desmond referred to most of his jobs after the war as nothing jobs, and I touched on this a bit in my episode on Johnny Hodges, 
At the end of the 1940s, musical tastes were changing, and the music was becoming more geared for listening than for dancing. Many of the big bands were struggling financially, and that meant that many of the jobs which musicians relied on were at risk. Jazz was becoming the domain of the soloist, rather than uh, focused on sort of section playing with multiple horns playing together, as had been the major style throughout the big band era. At just 22 years old, a note written by Desmond explains how he feared he wouldn't be able to make a living as a musician much longer and would likely have to fall back on his other passion as a writer. In a way, the musical inventions of Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, and Bud Powell hurt Desmond's musical prospects in the short term by helping to lead uh, to the demise of the big bands. But also, it really fueled his long-term success by, you know, injecting new harmonic sensibilities and, and, and just beginning sort of the concept of modern small group jazz. As I mentioned earlier, Desmond had been struggling to find work after the war uh, as, as the collapse of many of the big bands left a lot of musicians in the lurch. He was frequenting many jam sessions and catching sets from other bands, playing all around town, just trying to get something going, when he stumbled upon a pianist called Dave Brubeck at a club called El Borracho. Their first meeting at the, you know, kind of quasi-audition for the army band a few years earlier had left little impression on either musician, but this time Desmond was taken aback by Brubeck's playing. Brubeck shortly moved from uh, from the Boracho Club to the Gary Cellar, which was under the Gary Theater, where Desmond used to come by and, and sit in frequently. Uh, and he would trade uh, uppers, you know, like Benzedrine tablets, to the bassist Norman Bates in exchange for the opportunities. Almost immediately, he had a recognizable mental musical connection with Brubeck. Both musicians later spoke about the way that they were able to improvise the counterpoints for which they would later later be known almost immediately. There are no known recordings of those first sessions, but several of the musicians present say that Desmond's sound was much fuller and more robust than the sound that he eventually became known for. In that regard, he was still developing his musical voice. Although it seemed that Brubeck and Desmond had an instant connection, it didn't develop into a full-blown collaboration immediately. For now, Desmond was just sitting in with the group. That summer, 1947, Desmond took a job in a quartet led by trumpeter Kent Jorgensen at the Feather River Inn, which was a European-style chalet resort in the High Sierras. The resort featured music for dancing and had been a reliable source of work for musicians since it opened some three decades prior. The group typically had Sundays off and would usually travel the 300 miles to San Francisco where Desmond would head straight for the Gary Cellar to sit in with Brubeck. On a side note, Desmond's relationship with Kent Jorgensen was was an example of how Desmond kept people compartmentalized. The two musicians worked together for months and had made the 600-mile round trip to San Francisco and back many times together. Yet years later, when asked about Desmond's wife in an interview, Jorgensen uh, had no idea that he was married, even though Dwayne had been to visit the Feather River Inn, uh, I think, multiple times. And, you know, they'd made all these trips together. Back in the Bay Area, Brubeck was studying with Darius Mio at Mills College and was beginning to rehearse an experimental octet that included Dave Van Crete, Cal Jader, Paul Desmond, and others. Desmond wasn't actually a student at Mills, but was part of the octet. I guess I didn't realize this, but uh, Mills was an all-female school for much of its history. 
Uh, Brubeck's older brother, who was also a composer, and the composer Pete Ruggalo were the only male exceptions at the school prior to Dave Brubeck and, and the couple of the musicians that he was studying with. In many ways, the Dave Brubeck octet is the predecessor to the arrangements that Gil Evans made for the Miles Davis album, Birth of the Cool. It can be a little tricky listening to these recordings with modern ears and hearing them as radical for the time, but if you think about how independent the lines are in each arrangement and the kind of orchestral-like textures, you can begin to hear how these arrangements would have been vastly different from any of, of the other jazz going on at the time. Particularly, like, you can hear how it broke from the big band styles and like with section playing and everyone playing in those like really tight unisons, like with even kind of the vibrato like uh, synchronized like that. I think that you can truly hear the roots of cool and West Coast jazz in the Dave Brubeck octet. And I think that this is important because a lot of times the narrative that we're taught in jazz history is that cool jazz developed as, as some sort of like reaction to bebop. But I think that these recordings, which have all of the hallmarks of cool jazz, show that cool jazz developed more or less simultaneously with bebop. I also think that uh, the Dave Brubeck octet is a good example of the type of a certain kind of uniquely American idiom. It's a mixture of sophisticated European compositional techniques with American-born swing and rhythmic sensibilities. On one hand, you could view this as a bastardization of either of those sources, but I tend to think of these mixtures as being distinctly American because they simply could not have happened anywhere else in the world. The swing and rhythmic feels are native to America, and the proliferation of dance bands throughout the war years ensured that there were players capable of delivering them to audiences ready to hear them. Likewise, uh, the European harmonic complexities and compositional devices channeled through Brubeck from Darius Mio were only possible because Mio sought the safety of life in America for Jewish people uh, during Nazi occupation of France. In this way, I think the octet is one version of distinctly American music. On the octet record, the group takes the listener on a narrated history of popular music in America via the tune How High the Moon. The group plays the tune round and round seamlessly, modulating uh, through early New Orleans, ragtime, swing, bop, and the group's own blend of European and swing idioms. It's, it's a really smart history lesson packed into a seven-minute recording, and it's also just really neat to hear the players move from style to style so easily. While this group was mostly a non-commercial vehicle for experimentation under the safe cover of Academia, the group did do a number of gigs, mostly at Chinese restaurants. According to clarinetist Bill Smith, the group typically wouldn't be asked back after performing one of these occasional Chinese restaurant gigs, so they would just book it under a different name with a different member of the group being the, you know, being the leader. So you get it, like, they, they play at these Chinese restaurants, they come in, play their stuff, and it's just like, it's too weird. They're like, we want a dance band, you, you, I don't know what you guys are doing. And they're like, okay, no problem. Uh, so how about this week? We have the Bill Smith octet or we have the Cal Jader octet and it's just the same band and they, they do it once and they get fired and they just hire them again under a different name. <laughs> it's pretty funny. While the group didn't exactly find much traction with Chinese food enthusiasts, the octet was championed by Jimmy Lyons, who was a DJ at KNBC and future founder of the Monterey Jazz Festival. In fact, it's Jimmy Lyons who does the narration on that How High the Moon uh, music history lesson that I mentioned earlier on the record. I can't really say enough about that octet record. It, it was new to me, and uh, it's 
it, it's really cool. I, I think it's really worth a listen. After having spent some time living in their own apartment, Paul and Dwayne moved in with Paul's parents, probably finding it financially necessary as work was hit or miss for Paul. Dwayne describes living there as welcoming and friendly, if a bit odd at times due to Shirley's condition. The couple were also working together as Dwayne was trying to make it as a singer until, in her words, uh, she came to her senses. <laughs> so Desmond had this uh, the short stint uh, at a place called The Bandbox in Palo Alto with a group led by drummer Howard Keith. And when that ran out, the gig was offered to Desmond, you know, to be the leader. So he accepted, and that meant that he needed to find a group quickly. This was sort of the perfect setup for a coup that Desmond had, had no doubt been wanting to pull off for some time. Dave Brubeck was still playing at the Gary Cellar, and Desmond had been sitting in regularly, and he, he's since made it known that uh, he was just thoroughly unimpressed with the saxophonist in Brubeck's group, who was called Daryl Cutler. It's easy to imagine him sitting in with the group after watching a few tunes of, of Cutler playing and thinking, why don't they get rid of this guy and get me in there permanently and I can just stop like sitting in. So when the opportunity at the band box popped up, Desmond simply snaked Brubeck's band minus Cutler, leaving his, his rival saxophonist without a gig. Desmond paid Brubeck $42.50 a week, which was union scale and kind of a significant pay cut from what Brubeck was getting at the Gary Cellar. About the gig, Brubeck said, I didn't know how the hell I was going to live on that money, but I knew the music would be good. Desmond was getting $46.50 a week as the leader, and that's about $593 a week in 2023 dollars. Brubeck found the pay uh, at this gig to be so tight that he took to selling sandwiches around the downtown San Francisco offices at lunchtime. Brubeck also mentioned that he was scared for his life every time Desmond drove them down to Palo Alto for the gig. He claimed that Desmond worked out that all of the traffic lights were timed for 45 miles per hour, so he reasoned that he could also make all the lights if he just went twice as fast at 90 miles per hour. This allowed him to leave later and get to the gig faster, but left Brubeck white-knuckled and fearing for his life. Despite the dangers of the commute, both Desmond and Brubeck remember the gig at the bandbox as being musically very good, with the two expanding on their improvised counterpoints and collective mind-meld approach to improvisation. They both describe their performances as being a bit raucous and much louder than we would probably expect for a Brubeck-Desmond collaboration. Desmond describes his playing as, quote, always screaming away at the top end of the horn, unquote, and said that Brubeck would be, quote, constructing something behind me in three keys, unquote. Unfortunately, no recordings exist of these gigs. It would be super interesting to hear what they actually sounded like. The Bambox gig was largely where the great musical and personal closeness between Desmond and Brubeck started, according to both men. It was also the first source of acrimony in their relationship, of which there would be plenty in decades to come. Basically, Desmond was offered to go back to the Feather River, uh, Feather River Inn in the High Sierras for the season, and when he announced that he was leaving, Brubeck assumed that he would just take over the gig and, and you know just have Bill Smith or Daryl uh, Cutler or somebody come in uh, to play instead of Desmond. Well, Desmond was having none of that, and he had this really bizarre reaction where he insisted that he had found the gig, and therefore only he could be the leader. The gig would just have to not go on until he got back, uh, you know, after a few months at the Feather River. 
I don't get it at all. Uh, and in a way, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that Brubeck would work with him again. Desmond must have known that Brubeck had a wife and two kids to support, and losing this gig was a major blow for him. It just seems like a really weird, selfish move that he would rather like blow up the gig rather than let you know his own band just take over the leadership duties until he returned. So it's, it's it's a really weird one. So back at the Feather River Inn, uh, Desmond settled into his routine of performing at night and lounging by the pool. Uh, most days, you know, just like reading and writing out there. He was studying Shakespeare at, at San Francisco State, so he was known to be uh, often found reading a, a heavily marked volume of the Bard's complete works. While at the Feather River, he also picked up two habits that would follow him for life, a love of slot machines in nearby Reno and smoking. About his gambling habit, uh, it was never table games or racing or anything like that, only slot machines. Desmond was known to write bad checks in the casinos and, as a result, had no credit. He even tried to get a guy at a gas station to give him $20 once and charge his credit card for $20 worth of gas just so he could put it on the slots. He was like such a degenerate gambler on slot machines. It's really weird, right? Desmond may have been living the high life in his resort gig, but Brubeck and his family were having a rather uh, rough time at another resort gig that Brubeck finally managed to book. The resort was called Al Davis's Log Cabin at Clear Lake, and the gig paid union scale of $42.50 a week, and also included room and board for the whole Brubeck family. Unfortunately, the little cabin they were given to live in was intolerably hot, leading the family to sleep outside many nights until the sun came up. Exasperated by the ordeal, Brubeck told his wife, Iola, I never want to see Paul Desmond again. Paul and Duane divorced in 1949 after just two years of marriage. The two didn't have a big fight or some major problem in the marriage that either could point to. It just didn't work out. Duane describes walking past Paul's typewriter one day where a letter was uh, a letter he was writing was still in the spool and it read it looks like things are kind of falling apart here too bad Duane seems to suggest that both parties were were very cerebral and and just like not really connected with reality i imagine that the late nights and time spent living away on gigs probably made for difficult circumstances as well on the positive side, neither Duane nor Paul seemed particularly hurt by the dissolution of their marriage. The two met occasionally throughout the rest of their lives, and, and Duane regarded them as old buddies. After the Feather River gig ended, Desmond came back to San Francisco and, unsurprisingly, did not meet up with Brubeck. He quickly fell into the rhythm of going to jams in the Fillmore District after he would finish whatever sort of casual he was playing that night. Fellow altruist Herb Geller tells a story from this time where he was out late one night and a kid approached him from an alley asking if he wanted to buy a Selmer saxophone and a buffet clarinet. Although it sounded very suspicious, he followed the kid down the alley where the explanation was given that, you know, someone had just come into town and, and needed some money, so he wanted to sell the pair of instruments for just $75. Geller said he had always wanted a Selmer saxophone, so he went for it. And the following day, a friend told him about a saxophonist who had had his car broken into and his horns taken the previous night. Geller called him up, and of course, it was Desmond. 
Geller confirmed the serial numbers and and said, you know, he'd like to get the $75 back in exchange for the horns. But Desmond said that he'd, he'd spoken to his insurance company and they advised him not to pay it and said that Geller had broken the law by purchasing the stolen instruments. Uh, to be honest, it's, it's a bit of a jerk move, if you ask me. I think if, if someone, you know, has the foresight to, to buy your horns and uh, offer them back to you, you should probably just pay them, right? Weirdly, uh, shortly after this, Desmond would do a short tour with pianist Jack Fina, and uh, Geller was also in the band, uh, and he would have most likely been playing Desmond's horns if uh, you know the two hadn't connected. And they were actually roommates on that tour, so it would have been uh, you know it could have been a little bit a uh, little bit awkward, a little bit spicy, figuring out how uh, one saxophonist came to be in the possession of the other's instruments. You know, you can imagine like the first night on the gig, like, uh, oh, what do you, you got a balance action there, huh? Well, I used to have a, I used to have a balance action, man. I love that horn and uh, it got stolen. It, I, mine had this weird thing. Uh, oh, yours. Hey, wait a minute. What, you know, <laughs> like that kind of thing, right? Uh, there are a number of letters from Desmond to his father from this time, uh, which are published in Ramsey's book. And Desmond is quite candid about his struggles uh, and what's going on with him musically in the band. And it paints a pretty interesting picture of a young saxophonist who is struggling with consistency issues, both in terms of finding and keeping good reads and, and also improvising successfully when called upon. Desmond was playing third alto in this group, and he seems to be struggling with confidence as he, he says repeatedly that he's glad that he doesn't have the responsibilities of playing lead and that he's been struggling with intonation. Desmond talks about how playing the third part, he struggles with playing in the bottom third of the horn, something that he's you know clearly not known for later in his career, right? He's always known as playing kind of at the, the top end of the, the instrument's register. He also says that the band's intonation drifts away from the piano, and so they use what he calls the follow-the-majority system of tuning, which then leaves him scrambling to retune to the piano when he goes to the microphone to solo. I think these these gripes show that he was really trying to do his best playing and, and was really listening actively to the other musicians each night. His letters give me the impression of a young man who really cares, even if the musical context he's playing in doesn't particularly inspire him. Desmond also laments that he sometimes only gets a couple of choruses a week to really blow on, though he says when he's lucky, he can sometimes get four or five choruses a night. From this, we can see that the music he was playing was very much commercial and in the old big band model, not the largely improvised, uh, you know, kind of head tunes for which he would uh, best be known in the future. A couple of times in this correspondence, he mentions interplay with the pianist who would invent a line that Desmond would then alter, and then the two would develop it through the changes. This seems to be when he feels the best about his playing, though he says it was never as good as it was when he and Brubeck did similar things at the bandbox gig. In his letters, Desmond also shows that he was wrestling with the explosion of bebop and how he would relate to it. He acknowledges that he is not a bop player, but says that he enjoys listening to it and admires its creators. He says, quote, I can't see the point in throwing away one's individuality and working like mad to become a carbon copy of Charlie Parker, unquote. That might sound a little silly to modern ears, but I think it's important to recognize just how popular it was to try to sound like Charlie Parker 
and how Bird's approach to playing was so radically different from what came before him that even going like a little bit in that direction would probably get you lumped in with the Bird imitators. He goes on with a rather naive but very relatable sentiment, uh, quote, even if you play what isn't as good, as long as it's your own, it should be valid, unquote. Desmond's letters make it clear that he does not see himself fitting into the bop explosion, but recognizes that times are changing and he isn't sure how he's going to fit into the scene in the future. He mentions one aspect of the bop craze that is kind of telling. Uh, he talks about how many players who are trying to imitate Charlie Parker just steal his phrases and reassemble them almost at random in their solo. And therefore, it's very difficult to tell who's who on records because a lot of the saxophonists are, are you know, becoming like kind of indistinguishable. I just think it's interesting that Desmond is pointing this out because I think he's possibly the single most recognizable alto player of all time. It's clear that individuality is something that he prized. In fact, Desmond lays out exactly the qualities in music that he feels are, are most significant. Beauty, simplicity, originality, discrimination, and sincerity. So Desmond, he's been on tour with Jack Fina, and, and they finally make it to, to New York, which was one of the reasons that he stuck it out playing third alto for so long with this band, even though he was kind of hating it. Upon arrival, it seems that Desmond was somewhat surprised to find out that Bop was not quite as ubiquitous in New York. Uh, Ramsey lists Art Tatum, Charlie Parker, Billy Holiday, Coleman Hawkins, Red Norvo, Lester Young, Errol Garner, Hot Lips Page, Nat Cole, Pee Wee Russell, Al Hag, Buddy DeFranco, Sidney Bechet, and Sarah Vaughan as being just sort of a selection of, of you know, the countless jazz musicians working in New York in the late 40s. Ramsey points out how the new avant-garde bop musicians versus the old guard jazzers battle was largely something created by music critics and tribal fans. This is not surprising, and pretty much every era has some, some version of this tribalism imposed on it, not by the musicians themselves, but by critics, record execs, and other cultural commentators. I can imagine Desmond becoming more conflicted and stressed about Bop and, and like how he's going to fit into this thing the closer and closer the band got to New York and then arriving and finding out like, oh, it's not really this A or B situation at all. And all the musicians are, are commingling and sitting in together and, and respecting each other based on ability, not style necessarily, and just feeling like totally relieved. I imagine he also felt a bit vindicated that he had chosen to stick with his own style and not jump on any bandwagons. Back in California, Brubeck's summer of misery finally came to an end when Jimmy Lyons phoned with an opportunity for Brubeck to work with a trio at the Burma Lounge in Oakland. Brubeck jumped at the chance and was also soon playing on the radio for Lyons' show on KNBC. Things were looking up, but he was still furious with Desmond, telling Eola, if Paul Desmond comes back, don't let him in the door. <laughs> Luckily, Desmond was on the opposite coast playing bland dance music with Jack Fina at the Waldorf Astoria. While the music he was playing in the evenings was pretty vanilla, the jams and other sets that Desmond was going to each night were much more inspiring. Desmond was known to stay up quite late uh, with the assistance of a lot of drinking and Benzedrine and hit the 52nd Street clubs each night after his gig with Fina. Frequently, he would, you know, he would do this and, and just sit in where he could. 
It's an odd time in his life. It, uh, to be honest, I struggle to figure out. His letters home to his dad are filled with complaining about the gig and, and how his playing is just falling apart because he has to play so low and so quiet and with bad intonation each night. Okay, I get that. Like, it sucks to play with a bad band, right? That does sound like a nightmare. But he's also supposedly, like, really inspired by all this other great playing that he's going to see every night and sitting in with and, and you know, just the incredible nightlife of New York each night in the 40s. I guess it was a matter of, of knowing that other players were out there doing these incredibly interesting things in the city each night for their own gigs, and, and he's, like, stuck playing this lame dance music at a barely audible level for society types. While Desmond may have been working steady and kind of hating it, while Brubeck was struggling in poverty, the situation was slowly turning in the pianist's favor. His gig at the Burma Lounge was a huge hit, largely due to Jimmy Lyon's on-air promotion. There was frequently a line of sailors waiting around the block to hear the pianist. Yes, literally sailors, because Lyon's radio show was able to be heard by uh, ships anchored off the coast or passing by. His trio and octet recordings were selling up and down the coast, and he was starting to gain some traction in the national jazz press, you know, magazines like Metronome and Downbeat. Brubeck was also persuaded to uh, purchase the master tapes for his trio recordings for $350. This was like a ton of money for Brubeck, but in hindsight was just like an incredible financial move for him. Though Brubeck's trio records sold only modestly, Max and Sol Weiss founded Fantasy Records in order to have uh, an imprint that put out new jazz releases. And, and their new company was largely begun, uh, you know, to put out Brubeck's releases. So this, this little record label that uh, kind of starts with these, these trio recordings eventually uh, records Credence Clearwater Revival which made them enough money that they were able to buy Prestige, Milestone, Riverside, Contemporary, and a few other small labels. It, it also allowed them to uh, create a film production company uh, that was responsible for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Amadeus, and The English Patient. You know, every company has to start somewhere, and this giant entertainment Goliath uh, started with Dave Brubeck's trio releases. I just think that's kind of a neat little aside. Even as things were picking up for Brubeck career-wise, his young family was still struggling in poverty, with the pianist's income barely managing to put food on the table. Brubeck recalled how even as his records were starting to sell and, uh, you know, he's starting to get a little bit of notoriety, he's, he's also like having to buy dented cans of food at discount and, and he's hanging around the farmer's market when they're closed so he can like get produce that would otherwise go bad. He even says that the local butcher would give him bones for the dog that the Brubecks definitely did not have and that they would use them to make soup. Uh, telling the story of Brubeck being so hard up is, is a real bummer, but it's important to understand the hard times he was going through and that he blamed Desmond for a lot of these financial woes since Desmond wouldn't let him have the bandbox gig when he left for Feather River. Desmond did offer something of an explanation for leaving Brubeck behind in a letter to his now ex-wife, Duane. Basically, he said he didn't want to take a chance on a premature fizzle. He explained that uh, he thought the group from the bandbox had tremendous potential, but that it wasn't ready. 
He was thinking back on all of the rehearsals he'd been through to scramble and get ready for an audition at a club only to have it go south in the end and and just didn't want to take a risk on a group that he really believed in. It's a nice sentence. It's a nice sentiment, but there are sort of two problems with this logic. First, if the group was so important, why not stick around and try to develop it? I suppose maybe it was youthful arrogance to just assume that he could he could take a seasonal gig hundreds of miles away and everything would just wait for him to you know come back and but that's like pretty demanding of the people you leave behind right and secondly why wouldn't he just let Brubeck take over the gig when he abandoned it that just seems totally uncool to me if he was feeling really ungenerous he could have like you know demanded a percentage or something. Uh, from Brubeck, but but to just blow it up, well, let's just say Brubeck's feelings make a lot of sense to me. I mean, it's just kind of a dick move, right? Just as Dave Brubeck had Jimmy Lyons to champion him a bit and give him a, a little bit of a leg up, you know, that he needed to get his career moving, Paul Desmond had uh, had some help from an unlikely source. While in New York, Desmond ran into Ed Arnaud, an acquaintance from his former gig at the Bandbox. Uh, uh, he ran into him at a matinee performance of Mr. Roberts on Broadway. The two spent the rest of the day and night uh, around the village drinking and catching jazz sets uh, and ended up in Arnaud's uh, hotel room. Arnaud said that he had been listening to Desmond complain about how fed up with playing schmaltzy dance music with Fina, how, how fed up he is with playing this music. And, and so he's like, you know, you keep talking about how you had this great thing in California with Brubeck. Like, just call him. Call him up and, and get over yourself and, and figure it out. So Arno says it took a lot of convincing and that Desmond was not eager to make the call, but he did, resulting in Desmond agreeing to leave the band soon and come back to California. Uh, for the record, neither Dave nor Iola Brubeck remember Desmond calling, but they do say it's possible. That fall, 1949, as the FINA band headed west, Desmond left the group in St. Louis to head for California and greater things. I think that's where we'll leave things for part one of our story. As usual, I want to leave you with a couple of listening recommendations in case you're interested. At this point in the story, none of the major recordings featuring Desmond, or indeed anything under his own name, have been made yet. The Dave Brubeck Octet had recorded an album, though it wouldn't be released in the form that's available today until later. But uh, that would be my, my biggest recommendation. It's, it's just such a great example of early cool school, cool jazz writing, and, and you can clearly hear the influence from Darius Mio and Brubeck's writing. It also features some of the earliest recordings of Desmond himself. Also playing clarinet and baritone saxophone on the album is Bill Smith, who, who really wasn't on my radar when I began working on this episode. It's a bit unrelated to the focus of this episode, but I really love his playing, uh, especially with Jim Hall and Shelley Mann. So I'd really recommend checking out an album called Folk Jazz uh, under uh, Bill Smith's name. As always, thanks very much for listening, and please like and subscribe to the podcast, and, and please tell your friends. You know, one of the main reasons I'm making this podcast is that I want to make these great saxophonists seem relatable by telling the, the kind of nuances of their day-to-day -day lives and, and therefore maybe generate more interest in jazz and instrumental music in general. So please share it any way, any way that you can.
Thanks very much for checking out part one of the life and times of Paul Desmond, and please stay tuned for the rest of the story in the next episode of the Saxophone History Podcast. <laughs>